the National Archives podcast series, Reluctant Regicides, The Trial of Charles I Revisited, presented by Dr. Andrew Hopper. This talk was recorded on the 8th of May 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. Right, so there's been much recent controversy among historians over who was driving the king's prosecution and when exactly they resolved upon his death. Sean Kelsey and John Adamson have argued that five weeks of indecision followed the army's political coup against the moderates in Parliament, known as Pride's Purge, on the 6th of December 1648. It was not until mid-January that the decision for a trial was taken. So the old notion that the king's fate was sealed by the army's purge of Parliament is now being called under question. Bound up with how we interpret the trial of the king are numerous combustible issues, such as what sort of king was Charles I? Who do we blame for the descent into civil war and the failure to achieve negotiated settlement thereafter? What do we make of the character, purpose and motives of the English and Welsh regicides? In a series of influential articles, Sean Kelsey has argued that the army leaders, Cromwell included, were reluctant to try the king and for much of December they sought alternatives. Once the trial began, Kelsey maintains that execution was still not inevitable, that the charge against the king was deliberately weak and that many commissioners sought an alternative sentence other than death. So Kelsey sees the trial then as an attempt at negotiation by force with the aim of forcing the king to relinquish his negative voice, relinquish his power of of veto. Astoundingly, and as is very well known, the court repeatedly tried to accommodate the king by offering him between 9 and 12 opportunities to plead. Even on the 27th of January, a large minority of the king's judges sought to comply with his request to address Parliament. The king misinterpreted his opponent's disarray as a sign of weakness and by standing firm forced them into a reluctant capital sentence. It was only then, on the 27th of January, three days before the axe fell, that the commissioners finally resigned themselves to the king's execution. So this reading of the trial draws support from contemporary commentators, news books, tracts, and newsletter writers that spread the notion that the army leaders were trying to frighten the king into concessions rather than seeking to eliminate him. They used the threat of a trial to string along support from levellers and political radicals. Army control of the king was conceived of as an indispensable asset in preserving the army's political dominance and furthering their desire to crush their former allies within the Parliamentarian coalition, their Presbyterian and pro-Scottish interests. So from this comes the idea that the king was more used to the army leaders alive than dead. And John Adamson has also suggested that the anxious army leaders needed the king to call off the mobilisation of a new coalition that was emerging in his favour in Ireland that threatened a renewal of armed hostilities. So this reading of the trial suggests that many of the regicides were uncertain, reluctant and fearful of the revolutionary prospect before them. And it's one support 
from influential historians of the wider conflict of the Civil War, such as Michael Braddock and Richard Cust. It's also had an impact beyond academia. Howard Brenton's play, 55 Days, premiered at Hampstead Theatre in October and November 2012. It dramatised the period between Pride's purge of the 6th of December 1648 and the King's execution on the 30th of January following the 55 Days, showing the regicides, particularly Cromwell, as divided, uncertain, anxious, ready to negotiate with the King and it was only that the king pushing them really beyond where they were prepared to go that turned them into king killers. Yet since 2010, since uh, about four years ago, what we might call sort of Kelsey's and Adamson's interpretation of the trial has come in for some pretty trenchant criticism from the likes of Clive Holmes and Mark Kishlansky. They've argued that Kelsey has overestimated the strength of the king's position overblown the last-ditch attempts to negotiate with him and placed too much weight on the wishful thinking of ill-informed royalist newsletter writers such as Marcham and Nedden. They contend that the evidence suggests the trial was in earnest and there were no secret negotiations. Mark Kishlansky has even recently contended that the purported mission of Basil Fielding, Earl of Denby, one of the parliamentarian peers, to go to treat with the king at Windsor on behalf of the army on the 25th of December, as discussed by historians ever since Samuel Rawson Gardner and, and, and Victorian times, the king's supposed last chance to reach a settlement with the army leaders. Kishlansky attends this never even took place. He also suggests that at this point, the royalist threat from Ireland, argued to be a factor by Adamson, was nothing other than a paper tiger and that the coalition had not emerged at this point and that the army leaders and their allies in the House of Commons in, in, in England at the time were not really perturbed by that, this supposed threat. Clive Holmes adheres to the traditional view that Cromwell was prepared to countenance the king's death because God had evidenced against the king time and time again on the battlefield and if they failed to follow the signs of God's providence, God would punish England further. So against this conviction, Holmes contends that once the trial began, the king knew he was doomed. So we can see already two pretty diametrically opposed versions of how to interpret the trial. And all of this brings us to the exhibition downstairs in the Keeper's Gallery here this month. The National Archives has placed upon exhibition the Journal of State Papers relating to the trial proceedings. At the end of the trial, a committee was appointed to peruse and consider the whole narrative of proceedings so that they might be presented for examination to the House of Commons. The clerks of the High Court of Justice, Andrew Broughton and John Phelps, set about this task. The document was finally presented to the House of Commons on the 12th of December 1650 almost two years after uh, it was requested. And it was entitled, A Journal of the Proceedings of the High Court of Justice. It is a bound manuscript book. It's sometimes been called Bradshaw's Journal, to link it to the Lord President of the High Court, although there is no known direct connection to him. This journal has been directly cited by most leading historians, including Sean Kelsey, 
since J.G. Muddiman's book, The Trial of Charles I, in 1928. It comprises 59 folios, is almost identical with the trial proceedings that were later printed in State Trials by Howell. You can see the manuscript book downstairs in the exhibition. It includes the act for establishing the High Court of Justice, the dialogue between the King and his prosecutors, and the eventual subscribers to the sentence. In the same order, it gives their names in the same order as on the death warrant. It even shows the order to fetch the executioner's axe from out of the Tower of London. Later in the volume, it includes the act for settling the protectorate government in 1654. So there are parts of the document that were, were added later. Also on display downstairs is a printed tract relating to the details from the Treaty of Newport. Now, these were the last negotiations uh, between the King and the Long Parliament in the form of 15 parliamentary commissioners who were sent to negotiate with Charles I in the town hall of Newport on the Isle of Wight, where the King was located between September and November 1648. During these negotiations, the King made important concessions, which I, I imagine he had no intention of keeping, um, including relinquishing control of the armed forces. Yet Cromwell blasted the Treaty of Newport in a letter to the King's jailer, Colonel Robert Hammond, on the 25th of November 1648, referring to it as this ruining hypocritical agreement. And he referred to the King as this man against whom the Lord has witnessed. Hostility to the Newport negotiations brewed among Parliament's soldiery. They'd been forced into fighting a second civil war against a duplicitous king, enduring much hardship and bloodshed in the process. Radicals amongst them called for justice against the authors of the second civil war and an end to negotiations with the king. The manifesto for their intentions was Henry Ireton's Remonstrance of the Army, which was approved by the Council of the Army at St Albans. It demanded, in, in, in quotations here, exemplary justice in capital punishment upon the principal author and some prime instruments of our late wars. How do we interpret that key quotation? Kelsey argues it is ambiguous, as it did not name the king personally. Kishlansky concedes that exemplary justice need not have meant a capital sentence to some. Yet Holmes considers that it was clear enough to contemporaries and there was nothing ambiguous about the remonstrance of the army. When the House of Commons rejected this army remonstrance and ordered the commander-in-chief, General Thomas Fairfax, not to bring the army closer to London, it invited armed retaliation. On the 2nd of December, the army occupied Westminster, and when the Commons voted to continue negotiating with the King, on the 5th of December, Commissary General Ireton, aided by army-friendly MPs, organised the soldiers to mount a political coup. This famously occurred the following day, on the 6th of December 1648, when several regiments occupied Westminster precincts. 
Colonel Thomas Pride stood outside the entrance to the House of Commons holding a list of MPs that he intended to prevent from sitting. Pointing out to him those to be arrested and those to be prevented from sitting, because he, he didn't know many of them personally, being a, a professional soldier, was a renegade peer, Lord Grey of Gruby, derisively nicknamed by the Royalists as the Grinning Dwarf, standing beside Colonel Pride, telling him who was allowed in, who wasn't, who was to be arrested. 45 MPs were imprisoned, and still more were excluded from sitting. Only 56 MPs, known to be friendly to the army, were initially permitted to sit, and military guard of the house continued for a week afterwards. Then, from between the 3rd to the 6th of January, 1649, the House of Commons passed an act setting up a high court of justice to try the king. They nominated 135 commissioners, some without their consent, to sit as the king's judges. The charges against the king were drawn up from the 9th of January and took 10 days to formulate. Kelsey has argued that the charges were deliberately understated and gave the king a perfect opportunity to clear his name. They amounted to the accusation of a treasonous waging of war on his own people in England and Ireland, though interestingly not Scotland. Yet Holmes has argued that the charges that the charge against the king was not weak, nor was it minimal. It accused the king of treason against his own people and of breach of trust, a crime for which many royalist insurgents had already been executed for their part in the Second Civil War, either for breaking their paroles not to fight again or for having previously been parliamentarians and changed by the rapidly changing political circumstances from 1646 to 48, found themselves more close to a royalist position uh, by 1648. It was important for the army to try the king in public with a show of legal process. None of the High Court judges would sit on the trial, so the regicides had to procure John Bradshaw, a provincial judge from Cheshire, to preside. But the trial of the king was highly illegal. It took place under no new constitution, no new um, political settlement had been made upon which the king could be tried. During the trial, he was wrongly declared to be an elective monarch. He was tried according to the theory of power ascending upward from the people, when England had always been a monarchy with a theory of descending power. No new constitution or, or leveller-inspired agreement of the people was in place to, to legitimise the trial. The army's supporters entered into the trial to demonstrate the extent of the king's wickedness, but famously, of course, were wrong-footed by his tactics. The king refused to plead, declining to recognise the illegal court. Onlookers from across the political spectrum, from levellers to royalists, saw the proceedings as a sham. And after the event, Jason Pesey has shown us that the Republicans' attempt at a kind of a PR campaign to spin and justify what they'd done um, did very little to change this perception. So who were the regicides? Of the 135 commissioners appointed, 59 signed the death warrant. But 10 more who did not sign 
were present and stood in approval when the sentence was passed on the 27th of January. So the number of regicides, it might be said, uh, not 59, as is the commonly given number, but 69. These men were a mixture of army officers, soon-to-be Republican MPs, and independent ministers from the City of London. Some, but not all, were united by a religious conviction that Charles I had broken God's providence and had the blood of the people on his hands. And I'm sure many of you will have seen an image of the death warrant of Charles I. It used to be available in, uh, as a poster. A friend of mine had it in his downstairs lavatory, so when he was sitting, he could, he could peruse the signatures. And Hughes has argued that the regicide's decisions were not just determined by their religious and political views, as we might expect, but also by their character traits. How, how, how courageous, rash, or, or cautious, perhaps, their personalities were. After the Restoration, several of these men, including one commissioner, Thomas Waite, testified they'd been forced to participate in the trial and that doubt had remained at the time over its outcome. At first glance, this would appear to strengthen Sean Kelsey's argument that many of the King's judges were reluctant, uncertain and far from united. Now, Thomas Waite contended that as late as the 28th of January, his patron, Lord Grey of Gruby, the second signatory on the warrants, second only to the Lord President himself, remained uncertain that the king would die and that many did not sign the document until the 29th of January, the very day before the king's execution. Yet Mark Kishlansky and Clive Holmes have dismissed this evidence as unreliable. Indeed, it was taken from a man who was surely lying or possibly lying, certainly being uh, inventive with the truth, perhaps, to avoid the horrific execution that was threatened to him of being hanged, drawn and quartered. So other post-restoration testimony from regicides on trial for their lives is obviously tainted. You know, they were trying to excuse what they'd, what they'd done. They were trying to paint their actions in the best possible light. So as these men turned on each other in 1660, 1662, when the trials of the regicides took place, as these men turned on each other, uh, they suggest very little of an organised party amongst the judges intent on delivering an alternative or lesser sentence. And that's a kind of a key part of Holmes's argument. So what of the two leading generals of the New Model Army, Sir Thomas Fairfax and Oliver Cromwell? They developed very different political positions during the trial, but both became associated with the outcome much to the former, much to Fairfax's later regret. But Fairfax was the most notable absence from among the king's regicides. He feared more bloodshed, but nevertheless allowed the execution to proceed. He was named among the trial commissioners, and from the manuscript journal in the exhibition downstairs, we can see he attended a preliminary meeting of commissioners in the painted chamber on the 8th of January, 1649. Yet once he was convinced the trial was to be in earnest, he withdrew from proceedings. This might undermine 
notions that the king's fate was still very much up for grabs at this stage. A masked lady, thought to be his wife, interrupted proceedings of the trial to vindicate him from involvement, causing the prosecution some trouble with this disturbance. This did not prevent Fairfax as general of the army, though, as being depicted as directly responsible for the king's execution in a number of ill-informed contemporary illustrations. I've got a, a few here. There are a number of prints and portraits depicting Fairfax as the headsman, quite erroneously, of course. Even before the trial began, Edward Stevens, an MP, excluded by Pride's Purge, compared Fairfax to Pontius Pilate, beginning a series of connections that would link the sacrifice of Charles I to the sufferings of Christ. The reality was that he had been sidelined by his own officers and that his relationship with Cromwell and Ireton never recovered. Yet after the king's execution, he was allowed to write his own oath of engagement to the Commonwealth, which approved nothing of the past, which shows that the new republic was very keen to keep him on board as Lord General of the Army. His ultimate failure to either endorse or prevent the regicide led to a strong tradition of him being ridiculed as a mere pawn or fool uh, or a tool of Cromwell's Machiavellian ambition. And we can see this from a uh, Dutch medal uh, struck in 1650 uh, in the British Museum. The devil Cromwell and the fool Fairfax, two sides of the same coin. So what of Lieutenant General Oliver Cromwell's ultimate role in the trial and execution of Charles I? This is more murky, more uncertain. The old question, was the king doomed from the moment Cromwell decided he should die, remains a vexatious one. Because we cannot know for certain when Cromwell decided this and how set he was upon that course of action thereafter. None of his letters survived between the purge of Parliament on the 6th of December, 1648, and the regicide on the 30th of January. Instead, Cromwell's actions during the trial and its prelude are seen through the distorting lens of the popular press, which printed much rumour and speculation. Our knowledge is further skewed by the evidence for his behaviour testified by those regicides on trial for their lives after 1660. Naturally, these men had an interest in downplaying their role and magnifying his. As he'd been head of state thereafter, eventually he became Lord Protector. He was a very convenient bogeyman upon which to blame everything when they were seeking to save their lives in their trials. For example, Thomas Waite and John Downs reported being abused by Cromwell for urging caution during the trial. Downs claimed that Cromwell had called the king the hardest-hearted man upon the earth and whispered in Downs's ear that, quote, I aimed at nothing but making a mutiny in the army and the cutting of throats. Others claimed to have acted in ignorance or under duress. Waite, who testified that Cromwell had menaced him and laid hold of him, claimed to have been tricked into signing a document after the king was dead not knowing what was contained therein. Even more preposterously, Richard Ingoldsby claimed that Cromwell guided his trembling hand across the death warrant, forcing out his signature as he did so. So as Cromwell became ultimately the head of state, 
he was a convenient sort of bogeyman figure for both parliamentarians and royalists to apportion blame upon and to seek to uh, excuse their own conduct. And he became the arch-villainous regicide in Tory historiography thereafter. A a lot of this post-restoration vilification of Cromwell uh, comes in to, to blame him personally as the man chiefly responsible for the king's death. But of course this is tainted, tricky evidence for us to use in this way. It used to be thought that Oliver Cromwell lingered at the siege of Pontefract in Yorkshire, which was still going on. The Second Civil War was still going on during the king's trial and execution. It used to be thought that this was very politic, very politic of, of Oliver to delay arriving in London until after the purge had happened, as if he had no hand in the matter. He successfully delayed Fairfax's order to return to London for some time, so he arrived after the purge had happened. Yet a recent discovery among John Evelyn's papers in the British Library by Jason Pesey suggests otherwise. He's found a London correspondent writing on the 30th of November, 1648, that Cromwell was in fact among the army, quote, as thick as bees around about this city. Why has this primary evidence been neglected by leading historians of the prelude to the trial? The evidence could overturn traditional opinion. And if Cromwell was present in London during the purge, maybe he played a more proactive role in it than once thought. How does that then impact upon our conception of of what the trial was about? It could be argued that the real driver of events in precipitating the king's downfall was no single individual, but the collective weight of the new model army itself. This is where Kelsey's perhaps rather Westminster-centric focus and his neglect of particular popular lobbying comes in for potential criticism. Mounting pressure to execute the king came from army units and garrisons and provincial forces stationed across the country, not just those immediately around London. Parliament received dozens of provincial petitions calling for capital justice against the authors of the war. From October to December 1648, John Lambert and his Northern Brigade came out in favour of a trial, or at least the Council of War, the chief officers of the Northern Brigade, did so. In addition, several civilian petitions supporting justice against the King were received from Yorkshire and from Newcastle. One claimed to represent the well-affected of Leeds and Bradford, and another the gentlemen and freeholders of Yorkshire. David Scott has recently highlighted the important role of the North in bringing the king to trial, where he argues that there was some kind of regionally derived grievance against the king evident. It's often forgotten by Westminster-centric histories that the Civil War was still being fought in Yorkshire at the time of the execution, Pontefract had been withstanding a siege for months, and the North had suffered terribly from repeated occupation by Scottish armies, in 1640, again in 1644, and again in 1648. So to have these occupations, to have the insult of this 
third Scottish invasion in 1648, instigated by a king insensitive to his people's suffering, was just too much for many northerners. No less than eight of the regicides came from five northern counties, six were Yorkshiremen. Scott suggests then that northerners' support for the regicide was an attempt to sever the link between England and Scotland in order to make future Scottish incursions less likely. Quite an interesting point there about the interplay between the, the, the kingdoms of England and Scotland. It's not one that's been universally accepted, but there is a, certainly a strength of feeling amongst, the, amongst those northern regicides uh, and, and, and certainly a very anti-Scottish sentiment, something that perhaps continues to this day amongst Yorkshiremen and, and Geordies um, over, over the centuries since. So the survival of the king was also an obstacle to the formation of any new regime that could guarantee an indemnity for the soldiers once disbanded. This was crucial. Without an indemnity, soldiers would be vulnerable to legal prosecution for acts committed whilst under orders. Along with the problem of their mounting and unmet pay arrears, this was a practical issue which had done much to radicalise the army. So, for instance, if you were a, a soldier who, acting under the order of your captain, had requisitioned horses from a local gentleman, once you were disbanded and you were sent home, if you were a resident in that area, you could be tried for horse theft and hanged. So that's why Parliament was so eager to... So Parliament's soldiers, why the New Model Army in particular, but also the provincial forces, were so eager to have a legal indemnity in place to protect the soldiers for what they'd done during the war. And the king was seen by some to be an obstacle to achieving this. Prominent army officers called for justice against the king. Colonel Thomas Harrison famously called Charles I that man of blood. Colonel Robert Lilburn, brother to the famous leveller John Lilburn, demanded a trial to make answer for all the innocent blood that had been spilt in this land. The religious motive behind the king's execution was that God had witnessed against Charles in battle during the First Civil War. And rather than accepting the will of God, the king had defied it by attempting to renew the civil war. He'd negotiated with the Scots' army of engagement to invade, to restore him to his throne by force. He'd instigated these provincial uprisings across England and Wales in his support to rekindle the flames of civil war a second time. These provincial arguments carried enormous weight among some of the regicides. These, so I should say, providential arguments. Demands for justice against the king from the northern garrisons stressed, quote, the special overruling hand of providence. These were men who feared God. If they did not punish Charles I, then surely God would punish them and the English people too for their neglect in following his signs and implementing his his. his providential will. Alongside this stood millenarian fervour, the idea that England was God's elect nation and that the English people were living through the last days. The kings of the earth must fall for King Jesus to return and rule with his saints. For this, Joseph Salmon implored the army to continue its reformation in 1649, writing, You are the rod of God. You strike through king, gentry and nobility. They all fall before you. 
There was also the realisation that Charles I could not be treated with. He would never stop plotting and deceiving to recover his crown. Because he felt he need not keep his word to rebels, his word could not be trusted. He had a capacity for pursuing several lines of action, several lines of political plans at the same time, even if they were in direct contradiction with each other. If he were not disposed of, England would run the continual risk of further civil war. So he became too great a risk to be negotiated with and a liability for those seeking to keep the army under control. There was some fear what the rank and file of the army would do if they uh, were loosed out of the power of their officers. Now, I've argued that it was uh, Fairfax's ultimate realisation of this that prevented him from intervening to stop the trial. The consequences of such a political intervention would have been too great. They would have split the army and possibly uh, reignited further armed conflict. Thomas Shaliner, a Yorkshire regicide, an MP and associate of the Fairfaxes, felt that the people's safety was the highest law. He argued against a reprieve for the king on the 6th of January 1649, saying, unless we should value this one man, the king, above so many millions of people whom we represent and prefer his honour, safety and freedom before the honour, safety and freedom of the whole nation. Major William Rainbow, brother of the famous leveller Colonel Thomas Rainbow, took up this theme in July 1649 when devising a motto for his standard, Salus Populi Suprema Lex. The people's safety is the highest law. He placed this, rather provocatively, above an image of a severed head and an axe dripping with blood. From the safe distance, of course, of six months after the king had been executed. So I'd like to conclude now. Contemporary royalist propaganda and Tory historiography since have depicted the regicides as religious fanatics, social subversives, hypocrites, low-born parvenus bent on overturning the natural God-given order. Yet on the other hand, recent research into these men and their own testimony, admittedly in the aftermath of the Restoration in some cases, suggests very mixed motives and that some trial commissioners may well have been pressured or reluctant. Ultimately, the nature of the evidence of the 55 days between the purge and execution is hugely problematic. As Clive Holmes has pointed out, the evidence is marked and distorted by wishful thinking, self-interest, selective briefing, spin and deliberate promulgation of misinformation, as he puts it. Much depends on how we read the problematic evidence relating to the trials of the English regicides from 1660 to 1662. So both of the opposing interpretations remain tenable, with strengths and weaknesses on both sides of the debate. Yet, interestingly, neither side of the argument really can place Cromwell convincingly as the prime mover. In Kelsey's case, the king seized on indecision and weakness among his prosecutors and then overplayed his hand, leaving them little choice but to execute him.
This distances Charles I from attempts to portray him as knowingly taking on the role of martyr king against his cruel persecutors in the selfless royal sacrifice beloved of the high Anglican tradition. Of course, you can still witness Charles the Martyr sermons on the 30th of January in many English cathedrals. In Kishlansky's and Holmes's case, it was the weakness of perhaps the more moderate elements among the trial commissioners, but ultimately, really, the strength of hostility in the army as a whole that eventually sealed Charles I's fate. Their interpretation might be said to put the king in a more favourable light. Charles I was not the personal disaster and political non-entity that his detractors have maintained. Indeed, if he'd been so useless as a king, why was civil war possible? Why did it go on so long? Why was an armed royalist party so potent through the 1640s? In retrospect, it is hard to envisage putting a 17th century monarch on trial in public unless you are confident of a capital sentence being implemented. The delay with the trial and the multiple opportunities for the king to plead were about openness, publicity and sustaining as broad a support for the proceedings as was possible, not about a chance for a negotiated acquittal. Yet at the same time, we cannot rule out that doubt must have lingered amongst some contemporaries, even amongst the trial commissioners themselves, nourished by the faltering nature of the trial's proceedings and overawed by the enormity of the undertaking of what they were about. Whether Englishmen really could do the unthinkable. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.